Let us pray together. Father, we pray that you would speak to us now a word of grace and wisdom, that you would strengthen us to serve you faithfully in all of life. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 127 and 128 go together. They are quite obviously a pair. They both have to do with the family. These are sometimes referred to as the family psalms. Uh, Psalm 127 uh, is a psalm of Solomon, and some also think he authored 128 as well. So think with me for a moment about Solomon's place in Israel's history. When he became king, God said to him, ask of me for whatever you want and I'll give it. And Solomon wisely asks for wisdom. And his wisdom is reflected in these two psalms. These are wisdom psalms, psalms full of wisdom for family life. They reveal God's design for the household, God's design for your household. Uh, That's a good reason to listen to these psalms. They're reflective of God's design. Uh, These psalms describe what Solomon's wisdom looks like In the household, when Solomon's wisdom is embodied in family life, this is what it looks like. But there's something else. Think back to when Solomon's father, uh, David, died. David gave final parting instructions to Solomon. In 1 Kings 2, we read, When the days of David drew near that he should die, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the way of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, keeping his statutes, judgments, commands, and testimonies, as written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do. These are David's last words to Solomon. And how does he begin these last words to Solomon? He says, be strong and be a man. Be strong and prove yourself a man. Now, what does that mean? Well, part of it certainly is what David goes on to describe. He's uh, commanding Solomon to obey the Lord, to keep all of the Lord's testimonies, judgments, and statutes. But there's more. There's more. Something else, and I think David and Solomon both knew what this was. See, Solomon will not fight wars like David, his father, did. But he still has a great project to undertake, comparable to, comparable to, leading military commands. This great project is building the temple in Jerusalem. He will build God's house. And this building project he's going to undertake, building the temple in Jerusalem, is going to require initiative, leadership, management, skill, stamina, grit. It's going to require overcoming obstacles. It's going to require him to solve problems. He's going to mas- he's going to have to master different aspects of the physical world. Uh, in a way, you could say extend dominion, extend his own dominion in new ways. It's going to require gaining the respect of many thousands of workers who will have to be commanded. He's going to have to know how to delegate. Uh, it's going to require political skill as he negotiates with Hiram, king of Tyre, for assistance. If Solomon is going to succeed in building a house for God, he can't give up at the first sign of difficulty. He has to be courageous. Uh, he has to have grit. He cannot abdicate his leadership position. He cannot evade responsibility. He's going to need every bit of wisdom God gives him. If Solomon is going to be a man, 
if he's going to be the strong man David exhorted him to be, if he's going to be that kind of man, proving himself a man, he's going to have to do all these things. Now, by analogy, the same kinds of wisdom and virtue and extending of dominion that Solomon needed to build God's house, every man needs to build his own house. That same kind of virtue, skill, courage, and and mission-oriented way of looking at life, taking uh, ever greater dominion. What Solomon needed to build God's house, every man needs to build his own house. David said to Solomon, be strong, be a man so you can build God's house. And Solomon, in effect, says to men today through these psalms, be strong, be a man so you can build your house. That's really Solomon's message to us. That's what manhood really is all about. A man building his own house in order to build God's house. We can build up God's house by building our own, provided we do so in faith, obedience, and wisdom. And that's really what these two psalms together describe. The work of house building. The wisdom required in house building. Of course, they also describe uh, the place of the wife and the children in house building as well. And so we want to look at each one of these uh, this morning. The man, his wife, and his kids. Uh, the man is the head of the household. That's clear in both of these psalms. Both are written from the perspective of his headship, and you see that in different ways. Psalm 127, verse 5, for example, it is his children who are arrows in the quiver as he goes into battle. Psalm 128 opens, blessed is the man. It's really blessed is the man, not just everyone generically, but the man who fears the Lord. And it goes on to describe his family life. And uh, he's at the table with his wife and kids. And if you picture this, You really have to picture it with the man at the head of the table because he is the head. And as it's described, you see this. It's his table, his bread, his wife, his children. That's the perspective of the whole. It's written from the standpoint of his headship. And, of course, this is the consistent teaching of Scripture from beginning to end. Husbands are not granted headship by society. It's not as if marriage is a social construct or as if the structure of marriage, the hierarchical structure within marriage is a social construct. Husbands are not granted headship by their wives. No, God appoints the man as head. It is God's decree and God's design that makes the man the head of the family. And you see this in all kinds of different ways in Scripture. I'll give you a few examples of this. In Genesis 1 and 2, the man is made first, and then the woman is made from and for the man to be his helper. He's created and given a mission. Then the woman is created to help him in that mission. Now, when somebody helps another in their mission, you know what we call that? We call that submission. You're getting under another's mission. That's what it means for her to be the helper. We find in Genesis 1, the whole human race derives its name from the man. God made man, male, and female. Uh, in Genesis 2 and 3, the man uh, names the woman two different times. And naming is, of course, an act of authority. And so you see him exercising authority over his wife. Uh, the whole episode of the fall is presented to us as a case of role reversal. You know, what goes wrong in Genesis chapter 3? One way to understand the fall is it is role reversal. This is where everything goes wrong. The man, think about this, the man was given the prohibition to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before the woman was created. So if she was going to learn about that prohibition, how would she, how would she learn? He would have to be her teacher. 
God set it up where he had to be her teacher. He was uh, also, I think we can say, uh, the one who would give to her from the tree of life. They were free to eat of the tree of life. That's the tree they should have gone to. He should have uh, provided that tree for her. She should have received that fruit from the tree of life from his hand. But what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Well, instead of the man being the teacher, the serpent becomes her teacher. And instead of receiving the sacramental food from the tree of life from his hands, as should have happened, rather now he receives an anti-sacramental meal, the, the, the fruit of the forbidden tree, from her hands. And so in a way you could say she becomes the first feminist, the first female pastor who seeks to operate independently of her husband. But it's really all his fault because he just passively stands there and watches and lets all of this happen as his wife gets deceived. She becomes the pastor uh, and the one who presides over the sacramental food. That was supposed to be his job. He's no longer teaching her. Instead, she's learning from the serpent, being deceived by the serpent. And the whole reason that uh, this is a disaster in Genesis chapter 3 is precisely because he is to be her head and her leader. He is to be her protector and her guardian, and he fails in all of these ways. The fall, in essence, is a failure of manhood. Adam is effeminate when he should have been manly. He's a coward when he should have been courageous. He becomes a, 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 a pacifist when he should have gone to war and crushed the serpent's head. And so the whole episode in Genesis chapter 3, it turns that created order upside down. That's the essence of the fall. It's the fall because man was designed to be the head. Now, uh, of course, we can also say that Adam, even though he refuses to act as head, he still is the head. And because he is the head, it's in his fall that all of his descendants fall. He was acting as the head not just of his wife, but really of the whole human race there in the garden. But the key thing to see here really is that in Genesis 3, the fall is a fall from the roles God assigned to the man and the woman in the beginning. But we see something else in Genesis 3. After the fall, the man's headship over his household is restored. It continues to be normative even after sin enters the world. God's original creation design is still in force. And in fact, God promises to restore that original design and bring it to glory, bring it to perfection. And so that's what you see in the rest of Scripture. And so in Genesis 18, uh, what do we find? We find Abraham commanded to direct his whole household in the ways of the Lord. It's his household, therefore it's his responsibility. He has authority over his household, and he has responsibility over his household. Those two things always go together. And no doubt Sarah is one of the ones in his household he is to teach, but no doubt Sarah will also help him in teaching others in the household. But Abraham is the head. He is the one commanded to do this. In Ephesians chapter 5, the man is said to be the head of his wife in a way that is patterned after Christ's headship over the church. So he's to love her and rule over her as Christ loves and rules the church. He's to lead her as Christ leads the church. In Ephesians 6, verse 4, fathers are specifically commanded, the father is commanded to raise up his children in the Lord. Now, obviously, mothers are going to be a part of that. The father can't do it without the mother as his helper. Mothers are obviously a part of that, and maybe moms even have a bigger role to play in that in day-to-day life. But fathers are the ones commanded to do this. Fathers are the ones held responsible to see that this gets done. They are the ones 
commanded. Why? Because the father is the head of the household. Scripture often speaks of uh, things like the house of Abraham or the house of Jacob or the house of David. You never read about the house of Sarah or the house of Rachel. The whole family derives its name from the man. Again, a sign of his headship. Household baptisms work this way. Think about the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, it is Cornelius and his household that receives baptism. In Acts 16, salvation comes to the Philippian jailer and his household. In those cases, the man being treated as the head. Now, you can have a woman like Lydia in Acts chapter 16 who functions as the head of her household because no man is present. But the normal order of things is clear. The man is the head, the man rules, the man is responsible. That's God's design. Now, sadly, many husbands today are not functional heads. Uh, They are, at best, figureheads. And one reason for this is that men today are so beaten up, uh, so attacked all the time, seemingly both inside and outside the church, they, in a way, have become ashamed of their own masculinity. Oh, they may still be held responsible for the family, but they don't have any real authority over the family. Authority and responsibility have been separated. Man's still held responsible in a lot of cases, legally. Certainly in many ways he is, but he doesn't have that authority. Not functionally. Not not the way you see in these scriptures that I've pointed you to. I just saw in the past week, maybe you saw this too, where the United Nations has blamed the coronavirus pandemic on the patriarchy, <laughs> that it's all men's fault. Uh, the, 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 the levels to which people will go to blame men for anything and everything have reached ridiculous levels, really. Uh, it's, it's all men's fault, the coronavirus. Uh, husbands and fathers are constantly ridiculed in pop culture. When's the last time you had a strong, competent, father figure in pop culture. It's been a long time. We constantly hear about toxic masculinity, which maybe for some people means certain men are toxic, but all too easily moves over into saying all men are toxic. Masculinity itself is treated as a toxin. If there is any one thing that characterizes the progressive left in our day, it is hatred of father. Leftism is patricide. If you want to understand our culture, you have to understand that. Progressivism is built upon the hatred of father. And because men have been so beaten up, many men have abandoned their calling. That calling to be strong and prove yourself a man. Many men have just walked away from that that calling altogether. They've turned in their man cards. They've given up. They've said, you know what, maybe masculinity is toxic. I'm just going to try different something different. And so modern man has largely been feminized. He has largely lost his ability to rule his household. But it ought not to be this way. Remember, David's exhortation to Solomon from his deathbed was not, be a nice guy. It was, be a man. And that is still Scripture's exhortation to all of us who are male. God's word to males is be a man, man up, be strong, and prove yourself a man. You know, the best men in Scripture are not always nice. Indeed, the best men in Scripture can be firm. They can be tough. They can be rough. They can be dangerous when the situation calls for it. Think of David with his sling or Jesus with his whip. Men are courageous, men are to be honorable, men are to be principled, men are to have grit, men are to be mission-driven. There are certain qualities that are almost universally associated with masculinity. 
And they're almost universally associated with masculinity, not just in the Bible, but in most of the cultures that have existed throughout the world, because they are reflective of how God has made us. Men are biologically and psychologically and spiritually programmed to lead. Men are biologically and psychologically and spiritually programmed to take dominion. That's our calling, to be builders, to be fixers. This is our calling. It's how God has made us. Now, some men abuse this by becoming power-hungry tyrants. And there are certainly plenty of those in Scripture and throughout history, and they're around today as well. Uh, and they use their power, whatever authority they have, only in self-serving ways for their own good. And you can say that really is a, a toxic form of masculinity. But other men, and I would say this is far more common in our culture today, abuse their own manhood by abdicating, by failing to exercise the authority they should for the good of others around them. And we can call this toxic effeminacy. And actually, this is really the much greater problem in our culture. Well, what's the right approach? How does a man become a man, the kind of man that David exhorted Solomon to be? Well, Psalm 127 tells us the man can't build the house in his own strength. The Lord must build the house. The Lord must build the house through the man. And so a man should be humble. He should trust the Lord. He should entrust himself to the Lord. He should entrust his mission to the Lord. His work should spring out of that faith. He should be humble before the Lord. That's really the way of wisdom, and that's what Solomon is showing us here. That's what God did through Solomon. Who built the temple in Jerusalem? The Lord did it, but he did it through Solomon. Uh, that's really one of the things that sets Christian masculinity away from pagan forms of masculinity. It's this utter dependence and therefore this humility, this trust, this kind of masculinity arises out of faith, recognizing only the Lord can build the house. Psalm 128 also gives us a clue to this. It tells us that if the man wants God's blessing on his rule, he has to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And so a Christian man's direction and mission in life is driven by God's word, his his desire uh, to, to, to take dominion, his ambition, uh, his, uh, his aggressiveness and competitiveness, all of these things are not quenched, but they are directed and shaped by the word of God. So men rule. Men are the heads of their households. They are to rule and they are to extend rule out into the world for the sake of their household, on behalf of their household. But there's more than that. Men are not just rulers in their homes. They are also protectors and providers as well. You see protection in Psalm 127. The man goes off to fight on behalf of the city at the gate. He's got his quiver full of arrows. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he goes off to fight on behalf of the city. G.K. Chesterton said men fight not so much because they hate what is in front of them, but because they love what is behind them. Men are fighters precisely because they are lovers. Psalm 128, you see provision. So you got protection in Psalm 127. you got provision in Psalm 128. As the family gathers around the table, they are eating the labor of the blessed man's hands. He is the primary provider, the breadwinner for his family. He takes that responsibility to provide upon his shoulders. This is how a man serves his family. This is the blessed man In Psalm 128, the man serves his family by leading his family, ruling his family. He serves his family by protecting and providing for his family. He rules, he protects, he provides. And so what is the result of that? Well, look at him in Psalm 128. There's joy at the dinner table. 
You can practically tell that this is a family that is enjoying one another. There's laughter at the dinner table. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. Maybe even something like a Norman Rockwell painting is kind of the thing you have here. It's this beautiful picture of family life. What ties all of these together, this ruling, this protecting, this providing, is love. That's what ties all of this together. The man loves his family. Ephesians 5 commands a man to love his wife as Christ loves the church. That is the pattern. In fact, that allows us to add to this picture. We've got ruling, protecting, providing. We can add to that picture companionship. When a man loves his wife as Christ loves the church, they become the closest of companions. Augustine calls marriage a kind of friendly and genuine union of one who rules and one who obeys as they are joined together, walking side by side. That's Augustine's beautiful picture of marital life. Martin Luther put it this way. So the Christian is supposed to love his neighbor, and since his wife is his nearest neighbor, she should be his deepest love. That's the man's calling. Well, what about the wife? What is the wife's calling in this? Psalm 128 says she is a fruitful vine in the house. Because of the way he rules and protects and provides and is a companion to her, she is thriving. She's not just surviving, she's thriving. She's this fruitful vine in the heart of the house. I've said the man is the head, now we see the woman is the heart. The man is the head of the house, she's the heart. He is a house builder, she builds the house too as his helper. In fact, the book of Proverbs tells us the foolish woman tears down her house. That means the wise woman then builds up her house. He rules the house. And she submits to him, but she also rules in her own kind of way. He has overarching authority over the entirety of the household, but within that she has a kind of authority as well. It's true to say that she is to obey her husband. Ephesians 5 says she is to obey him in everything as Christ does the church. But just as Christ shares his rule with his church, so the husband shares his rule with his wife. And so we can say, if there is a patriarchy, there is a complementary matriarchy. If he is the king, that makes her the queen. What does it look like? What what does her rule, what does her authority look like in the home? I think you can see it if you look at 1 Timothy. A couple passages in 1 Timothy help us with this. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is giving qualifications for men who will be the officers and the leaders and the rulers in the church. And one of the qualifications a man must meet is he must rule his own household well. How can he rule in the church if he doesn't rule his own household well? That's the logic of it. But then in 1 Timothy 5, Paul says he wants younger widows generally to marry, to bear children, and to manage the house. That's what the wife does. She's a house manager. So put these together, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 5. He rules the house. His wife manages the house. Now, what's the difference there? Well, the word in 1 Timothy 3 for the man describes presiding. It describes ruling, one who has authority, who who rules over uh, a body of people. It's like he's the CEO or the captain of a ship. This is the person who has both final authority and full responsibility. Remember, keep together the authority and responsibility. That's really what it means to rule in this way. You've got authority, you've got responsibility. He's like the captain of the ship. That rests with the man. But then the word for the wife in 1 Timothy 5, it's literally a word that means something like house guide or house 
despot, or I do think house manager is a good translation. You could say this describes the first mate, the one who is closest to the captain, the one who is second in command. It describes a manager, one who is capable of taking care of various affairs, one to whom various affairs have been entrusted. And yes, this person is answerable to a higher authority. They're the manager, not the ruler. But she has a kind of authority of her own and therefore a great deal of freedom to act on her own. You can't micromanage the house manager. She's not really the house manager if he's trying to micromanage her. And of course, if you want to see this spelled out in greater length, you can look at Proverbs chapter 31. There you have a depiction of a woman who is a house manager, who on behalf of her husband and under his headship, under his leadership, under his authority, is managing the household. And so quite obviously, this is a position of dignity and honor and worth. Functionally, the home is her domain. And again, this woman is a thriving vine in Psalm 128. She is a fruitful vine in Psalm 128. We can further unpack that imagery. There's something glorious and beautiful about a thriving, fruitful vine. 1 Corinthians 11 describes the woman as the glory of the man. So what does she do? She brings glory to his world. Men without women are gloryless in a certain sense. The woman brings the glory. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who's always my co-teacher whenever I uh, preach or teach on these things, you can almost imagine him up here in the pulpit with me. He's kind of, he's, he was a bigger fellow, so I don't know how we'd both fit up here. But uh, Chesterton, uh, his teaching on the family is so good. He's always my co-teacher uh, when, I, when I talk about these things. Uh, this is what he said. After describing the man's headship over the family, he points out that there's still a very real sense in which the home is the woman's domain. And so he says, if I look round any ordinary room, at all the objects, at their color, choice, and place, I feel as if I were a lonely and stranded male in a world made holy by women. He's saying the home really is in a very real sense her domain. This is how she acts as his helper. She manages the home under his rule, and in doing so, she brings glory into the home. She brings glory into his life, a glory that would otherwise be missing. Now, what the woman must not do is she must not compete with her husband as a rival. Men and women, husbands and wives, are to be complements, not competitors. God does not want marriage to be a contest of wills or a power struggle. Men and women are to be complements, not competitors. But, you know, all too often today, this does happen. Where even a husband and wife will, in a sense, become competitors. They'll become rivals to one another. Today, there's so much pressure put on women to adopt a male life pattern, a male life arc. Uh, so much pressure put on women to do all the things that men do and to copy or mimic a man's pattern of life. You've got feminists who will tell women that they're doormats or leeches if they don't seek to maintain their independence from a man. Feminists will demean and trivialize the role that women have traditionally played in the home and the work that they've done in the home. See, we've got an attack not just on masculinity today. We've actually also got an attack on femininity uh, today as well. And we need to recognize that. Again, G.K. Chesterton, uh, he summed up the folly of feminism uh, in this way when he said, feminism is the confused idea that women are free when they serve their employers, but slaves when they help their husbands. It just doesn't add up. I mean, how can you say 
Something like this, according to feminism, if a woman is serving a meal to a bunch of strangers in a restaurant, she is free. But if she were to serve that same meal to her husband and children in her home, she would be enslaved. That makes no sense at all, but that's the essence of feminism. For the good of the marriage, the husband should be masculine. He should do his part, as uh, as David put it, to be a man. And for the good of the marriage, the woman should seek the glory of femininity. God made marriage that masculinity and femininity might come together and form a complete whole. But in a culture like ours, where men are losing their masculinity and, and women are losing their femininity, what happens? You know, again, today, there, there's a great deal of pressure on men and women both to minimize their sexual differences. We see so many people who want a unisex society, an androgynous society. But you know what? Uh, I came across, across a quotation where a theologian over 100 years ago pointed this out, and, and, it, and it resonated with me. The reality is men are not attracted to masculinized women. And a woman's not going to be attracted to a feminized man. It's actually the differences that attract us. It's sexual polarity that drives attraction. That's how God designed it. Again, G.K. Chesterton, I'll give you one more uh, from Chesterton. This one's a little bit longer, but it's so good. The argument is this, that the differences between a man and a woman are at best so obstinate and exasperating that they practically cannot be gotten over unless there is an atmosphere of exaggerated tenderness and mutual interest. To put the matter in one metaphor, the sexes are two stubborn pieces of iron. If they are to be welded together, it must be while they are red hot. Every woman has to find out that her husband is a selfish beast because every man is a selfish beast by the standard of a woman. But let her find out the beast while they are both still in the story of beauty and the beast. And every man has to find out that his wife is cross, that is to say, sensitive to the point of madness. For every woman is mad by the masculine standard, but let him find out that she is mad while her madness is more worth considering than anyone else's sanity. We should not minimize those things that God designed to pull us together, to draw us together as men and women. And finally, the children. The children are mentioned here, so I want to say something to children and about children uh, as well. These psalms tell us the way that we should view and raise our children the way our children should view themselves. These psalms are describing not children in general, but we could say covenant children, children born into believing homes. And and what is said here really traces back to Genesis 17, where God makes a promise to Abraham. He makes a promise to, to all believing parents. He says, I will be a God to you and to your children. That is the core covenant promise in Scripture that has to do with family. God's covenant promise is always cut across generations. The covenant always includes the children. It always includes the next generation. So how are the children here described? Well, in Psalm 127, they are arrows in the quiver of the man, arrows that the man carries in his quiver as he goes off to war. So as the father goes off to war, he's got his children with him as weapons. He's going off to fight the darkness of the world, to fight principalities and powers and, and, and forces of darkness in high places. And his children are his weapons. They are weapons in the war against Satan. Psalm 128, the children are described as olive plants. What do, what do you get from olive plants? You get olive oil from olive plants. Well, you know what olive oil symbolizes throughout Scripture in anointing rituals? It symbolizes the Holy Spirit. 
These are children who have the Holy Spirit. They've been anointed in a sense, you could say. The olive tree is indeed the holiest tree in the Bible. In Romans chapter 11, the olive tree symbolizes the covenant people. Some branches broken out, others grafted in, but the olive tree symbolizes the covenant people of God. Jesus was likely crucified on an olive tree since he was crucified on the Mount of Olives. Olive trees are everywhere in the Bible, and they always are identified with holiness in some kind of way. The point could not be any clearer to Christian parents. Your children are holy. They belong to God. They are Christian children. You must treat them and raise them accordingly. And kids, do you hear that? God cares for you. God loves you. God has already put his name on you. God has made promises to you. And God has made promises about you to your parents. How about that? Kids, that's what this means for you. See, the ideal picture you have here in these Psalms, you have this ideal picture of family according to God's design. Father, mother, and children. This is, we could say, the covenant family. This is what it ought to look like. And so we can notice a few more things here. you got the children with the mom and the dad. You know, all children need both a father and a mother. Because both fathers and mothers, well, they, we could say fathers and mothers both love children and nurture children and discipline children, they do so in markedly different ways. A father's love is very different from a mother's love. Paternal love is very different from maternal love. And fathers and mothers have different kinds of wisdom to impart. A father's wisdom is different from a mother's wisdom. But the child needs both. Paul gets at this, the differences between moms and dad and dads in First Thessalonians 2. When he basically says, fathers exhort and challenge, and mothers comfort and console. Those are the fundamental differences. You know, dads can be pretty hard on kids. That's how Tony Esselin puts it. He says, every boy knows that the worst thing for your game is to have your own father be the umpire, because all the close calls will go against you. Mothers, however, are not that way. They protect and promote their own even ferociously. And that's true. That's true. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's been said. This is another way to put it. Moms love through acceptance. Fathers love through alignment. And you can see how a child needs both. A child needs both. Every kid needs to be loved by a father and a mother, or a father figure and a mother figure, if the biological parents are not available. And they need this so they can see how father and mother love one another. That gives the child a model to follow in their same-sex parent, a model to look for in a future spouse and their opposite-sex parent, and then also a model of marital love as the child sees how uh, his parents love one another. And so you have a, a complete model for the child. You know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. But how do you get a village? How do you get a village? You only get a village if you first have lots of stable marriages that raise up faithful children. You have to have that first to even get the village. The reality is there is no substitute for what we see here. No substitute for mom and dad. No other family arrangement or collective arrangement or child care arrangement that can replace the one you see here. People in our culture want to experiment with all different kinds of family structures. And it's a disaster waiting to happen. You see it here in Psalm 128. When it comes to giving kids security and bringing kids to maturity... There's no structure that works better than this one. This is God's design. And parents, one last word to you. Perhaps the most important thing to understand here is the spiritual identity of your children. You have to understand your children, again, are Christian children. 
And that's got to shape how you raise them. Parents, your children are olive plants, not weeds. They're olive plants, not weeds. And so you help them grow with water, sunshine, and fertilizer. You water them. That means you baptize them. Uh, you give them sunshine. That means lots of hugs and lots of smiles. You smile at your kids. You hug your kids. And you got to fertilize them. That means you got to teach them God's word. Your kids are arrows. Arrows in the quiver. you got to sharpen them for battle. And you do that by disciplining them, by teaching them to obey you. You know, you got to teach your kids very young. No means no. You have to honor mom and, and got to honor dad. And behind that, of course, they're learning to fear God. You have to do these things. You're sharpening and straightening those arrows for battle. This is how you build your house. And this is how you build God's house as well. In fact, it's interesting to note how both of these psalms progress. We'll close out with this. Psalm 127 moves from the house at the beginning of the psalm to the city at the end. What is the city if not a collection of houses or households? No doubt this is the holy city, Jerusalem. This is the covenant community. We might say it's the church. The family is built up in order to defend something larger than itself. It has this larger mission of defending God's kingdom. And likewise, you see it in Psalm 128. It starts with this blessing for a nuclear family. And this nuclear family looks a lot like a renewed and restored Garden of Eden. You've got food, you've got fruitfulness, you've got joy. But by the end of the psalm, what's happened? We've moved beyond the present into the future from the kids to the grandkids. And we've moved beyond one nuclear family to the whole of Zion and Jerusalem. Again, to the whole of the covenant community that is experiencing this blessing. Building the house is for this, not just for its own sake, but for the sake of growing the kingdom of God. And that's what you see. You've moved from the blessed man's house to the house of Israel, which is God's house. And so here we come full circle, back to where we started with Solomon. As you build your house in this way, you are also building God's house. As you build your house in obedient wisdom and strength, you're building God's house as well. And that's what we're called to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.